It's great to see everyone tonight. Thank you for being here. We're in a series called uh, The Character of God. My story is I grew up in one of the most outrageously awesome homes you could probably ask or imagine for. Two folks, they're still married. They've been married, I should know this, probably I think 40 years now, 35 years, a long time. And uh, uh, Christian home. They were highly involved in church plants, grew up going to church, Sunday school, the felt boards. Anybody remember the felt boards, right? Uh, you know, hung out the right crowd, was involved in youth group, went to summer camps, all the church groups, you know, we sing all the songs. We have like altar calls every other night, you know, there or four times a day. Went to a Christian college, married a Christian woman, and yet still, how do I have a dysfunctional relationship with Jesus? How do I do this wrong? I had all the things right for me. I had the right parents, I had the right upbringing, I had the right church, I had the right education. And yet still something was off in my relationship with God. What is it that has this disconnect? Why does my relationship not sound like, talk like, be like these other people who are regularly engaged with God? What is it about them? I know a Bible verse, but I don't have what they have. And what I found is that well-intended people sometimes can inform a lie in your belief system about who God is, what he's like, what he does, what he doesn't do. And so there was this journey that I went through in my early 20s of extracting all these lies that I believed about the character of God that completely transformed how I believe God operates and interacts with me that finally lifted the ceiling on my relationship with him. And that's what this series is about, is extracting these lies in our belief system. There's a particular author, his name is Darren Hufford, and he's got a couple books on some of these topics, and I encourage you guys to check it out if you like this stuff. But this particular topic tonight probably had the strongest hold on keeping my relationship with God the most dysfunctional. And how do we know who God is? Well, fortunately, God says that he is love in the scriptures. It says God is love, and, and then the scriptures also define for us what love is. And so for us to know the correct and accurate character of God, we just need to look at love. But it's much more than just knowing who God is. It's also knowing who he isn't. Are you with me? It's just as important for you to know who God isn't as much as it is to know who God is. And so here's who God is according to 1 Corinthians 13. By our definition of love, it says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I had a very silly ambition that I was going to get this entire series in like four weeks. Not even close. But the reason I'm not going to try and fire a hose in the mouth it all the way through is just because there's our elements here that are so good, even if we don't get through the entire series in four weeks. It's important that we stop and observe these truths. And so tonight is God is not self-seeking. Last week it was God is not rude, but tonight is God is not self-seeking. Now some of these ones, like God is not rude, he's not proud, he's not boast, all these different things like love is kind of like, well, duh. But love is not self-seeking. God is not self-seeking. It's kind of a hard one for me because it's like, well, he's kind of God. Doesn't he have all people have permission to be self-seeking? And this was the single one for me for the longest time that held me in the most bondage because I had a really tough time breaking through a genuine relationship with God because we don't like relationships with people who are self-seeking. 
We've been trained to avoid people who want to use us, who accomplish goals in their relationship with us. When people make you a project, have a self-interest, are opportunistic with you, they're selfish with you, they're, you are a means to their end, we reject and pull back from those kinds of relationships. Yet, I had a real major paradigm issue with God because I'm like, God, you're doing everything through me. You need me. I'm giving you worship. And like, this seems it's all about you. And selfishness and self-interest is one of the most toxic ingredients to love. You look at divorce, you find selfishness in divorce. You find self-interest. You look at child abandonment, you find self-seeking and selfishness. In all the demise of every relationship, there's a self-interest ingredient there. And so we would never remain in a relationship with someone whose only interest in us is to have their own desires fulfilled by us. We call that abuse, don't we? But I believe God was self-seeking because my relationship with him was all about what I was giving to him. It was, never an, it was a never-ending treadmill of me trying to give to God. Let me give you a few examples. Like we give, I give my life to God. I give my worship to God. I give my glory to God, my relationships to God. I give my money to God. I give my career to God. I give my time to God. I give my startup to God. I give my truck to God, my music. You get the idea. There's a lot of giving going on. And I believe that God was a taker of all things, and I was the giver. That God only wanted for me what I could give. But I never knew if I was actually giving enough. How do you know if you're ever giving enough? It's like, God, I get to give you everything. What's everything mean? And you never know. <laughs> As you all hear, I had a very dysfunctional relationship with God that my relationship was measured with him by how much I delivered and put out. God was a self-seeking God who would not stop until he had everything. And these songs would torment me. You won't relent until you have it all. Like, I don't know if you have it all, you know. <laughs> just, just riddled with fear over I'm not giving God everything. I'm trying, but it's not enough. It can never be enough. And God is not self-seeking because God is a giver and not a taker. If you want to confront God's identity, he contrasts his identity with the devil saying, I come to give life and life more abundantly. God so loved the world that he, what? Took from everybody else. No, that he gave. His identity is squarely emphasized upon that he's the giver, not the taker. And for those of you who are like, wait a minute, he gives and takes away. Like we sang all those songs, right? I have a whole series on Job. Job should not be your poster child. He said this in the first chapter, okay? When all the stuff hit the fan, Job said God gives and takes away. But people end reading Job at chapter 1 because it's really depressing for like 42 chapters. But if you go and read in chapter 43, what you find is that Job says, I didn't know what I was saying. God rebukes him. We don't read it. We read chapter 1, God gives and takes away. We sing the songs. I sang God gives and takes away at a funeral. I can't believe it. If I knew who that person was, I would go to repent to them. I thought we were being comforting by me singing God gives and takes away at a funeral. The worst thing I've ever done maybe in my life. But at the end of the, of the book of Job, Job gets confronted by God and says, you have no idea what you're saying. And Job repeats and says, I said things too wonderful for me, things I had no business even saying. That's a different message, but it's worth mentioning because I know someone out there thought that. 
In the middle of my struggle of trying to give God all these things, my money, my career, my truck, all these different things, that the Lord spoke to me and says, you are giving me nothing that I want. You think you're giving me everything, but the fact is you're not giving me anything I want. And the two things I want is one, your heart, and two is I want you to be able to receive. Number one is I want your heart. Number two is I want you to be able to receive. How do you give a dirt bike to God? Tell me how that works. <laughs> God, I just lift it up to you, and it's yours. You know, like, we're, per we're perplexed by this, right? We say these things like I, like, I give my relationship to you. I give my grades to you. I give my dog to you. We have no idea what it means, really, do we? Like, if there's an altar, should I light it on fire? I don't know. But what it means is an examination of your heart. Is your heart encumbered? That's really what it means. Every single thing that you're wrestling with about giving to God has nothing to do with a thing. It has everything to do with your heart. That's all that God cares about. He has no use for a dirt bike in heaven. I promise you that. But I was so consumed in trying to give to God that I never asked if God wanted what I was trying to give. Maybe if you're struggling trying to give things to God, you should ask him, like, am I trying this the wrong way? Am I sending what you're asking for? You cannot give anything to God that he wants besides your heart. What does God want from me? Your heart. End of sermon. Goodbye. That's all it needs to be. What does God want? Your heart. Well, what about, he wants your heart, but your heart. <laughs> you want to take some notes? It's only two words, your heart. God doesn't even want your money if your heart's not in it. Did you know that? Yeah. The scriptures say, like, don't give out of re reluctance or compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. If you are, like, agonizing and hating giving God money, he's like, I don't, I don't want your money. I don't need it. What am I going to do with it? I'm in heaven. <laughs> it's all about your heart. And the second thing is that God wanted to give to me. I never even considered that, that God wanted to give to me. Now, I was no stranger to asking God for different things. But the fact that God says, I want to give to you, I was like, well, that's great because I want to receive. I want to receive a dirt bike. I want to, another new one. I want a wife. I want a surfboard. I want to receive a beach house. I want all these different things that we say, right? But here's the circular reasoning, right? We ask God for these things, and then we agonize to give these things to God. God, give me some of this, so then I can totally stress out about how to give it back to you. Again, you can see the psychosis that I've suffered with. But we ask God for these, these things, and, and here's for me is that, that I was terrified that my life would go well. Like, I wanted a life that had neither highs nor lows. It's like, I don't want, I don't want anything too good at all, because if it's too good, then it's going to go away. Have you, anybody ever fear that? Like, man, this is too good, and a hurricane's going to come now. Like, you're ready for, like, the stuff to hit the fan. And I was totally convinced that any blessing was just a precursor to what God was going to remove from my life. Because we see, like, my fear was that it would become an idol. And we see how God deals with idols in the Old Testament. It's pretty intense, let me tell you. 
And so I didn't want anything to make me too happy because if it made me too happy, then it became an idol. And if it's an idol, then I don't know there's going to be really bad things that are going to happen, maybe plagues. That's how my mind was thinking. And I was so afraid of receiving anything good and I would never let myself enjoy it too much. And God spoke to my heart and says, you're wanting me to give you none of the things I want to give to you. He says, I want to give you my heart and my voice. You're asking for these things, and you are being tormented by the things, but the thing I want to give you is my heart and my voice. If you think that God only gives you things, you're absolutely missing out. The greatest things that God give you, gives you is what he does in you in relationship. If your relationship is totally stale, maybe your prayer requests are just for things, jobs, cars, money, more money, a relationship, a new relationship. And God's like, the most transformational thing I can do with you and for you is actually in you, with your heart. We think God wants our stuff, and instead he wants our heart. We're asking God to give us things, and he's saying, I want to give you my heart. The most treasured things in my life now are the things that he does inwardly in me. And it's the things that he does the most. He gives the most to me, not in the material sense, but in the internal sense. Now, he could give me a beach house, but I wouldn't be transformed. I have a better view, but I wouldn't be transformed. But when God touches my heart, I'm transformed. That's the only way I can be transformed in relationship with him is his interaction with me and my heart. And what he's doing in my heart in this phase of my life is incredible. I actually enjoy who I'm becoming. I'm not terrified of good things happening to me. I enjoy being who I am because he's transforming me, not by material things or the lack or the abundance of things, but what he's doing in me in revelation and in me in my heart and in me in becoming a good father and being a good husband and being a good entrepreneur. And, and, and that's, I enjoy that. I'm not worried that as I'm getting better that like calamity's on its way. I've like disassociated those things. Why? Because he's transferring my heart. And you know what, the things of life, the the flesh, the money, the dirt bikes, the trucks, is like, it's just stuff then. That's all it is. It's just stuff. When God has your heart, he has no concern about whether you inherit the world. He's looking people who don't love the world to entrust the world to. But I receive far more from God than I ever give him. I used to be so terrified that I was trying to give him, give to him that he's been giving to me in a far greater abundance than I could even ever imagine. I used to keep score. God, I did this for you, I did that. I kid you not, I would reason with God in like building an orphanage if he would give me something. I don't know if you guys have ever done that. Real mature prayers here. <laughs> But in this is that I realize that God is not self-seeking because God is not a scorekeeper. God is not a scorekeeper. A self-seeking person knows the score at all times. And I took notes about it, actually. Do you have someone who's, like, really cheap? I'm like, really cheap. Do you have someone like that in your life? I went on a camping trip. It was the last camping trip I ever went on and maybe ever will go on. There's like 20 of us. We're all going there. We all decide, oh, some people get the food, some people get the drinks, some people get the cheese. We all get there. We're like, yeah, whatever. 
And the camping trip was utterly ruined because of the last day, the people we sat around, like me and like a few guys, and we argued about who drank how many cans and how many bites of tacos did you have? And I didn't have any cheese, so I shouldn't pay the $4 for the shredded cheese. And it went for like 15, 20 minutes. And it completely ruined, like the scorekeeper, like in the same person, one time I made the mistake of going out to sushi and it was like, well, I think you had like three rolls and Camille had two rolls and so I'm gonna like divide this up and it's like, this is insane. The ultimate scorekeeper. But when you find someone who's a complete scorekeeper, you find a self-interested, a selfish person. Because they want to make sure that no one gets away with anything that's unfair. For me, I thought that, like, I need to keep it fair with God. Like, once I got saved, then it's like, okay, tit for tat. All right. We're equal now. All right. But if I do anything bad, I need to make up with something good. But we've trained ourselves to keep score, right? If I were to come and, like, buy you lunch, like, we go to lunch and I buy you lunch, the first thought you're going to have is, like, I'm buying next time. You're going to be, like, thinking we do relationships in this tit for tat kind of way that I give what I receive. You need to remember that God's not keeping score of you. He says, I remember your sins no more. Throughout the scripture, God's saying, I remember your sins no more. Why do we keep remembering them if he's not? If we're made in his image, you probably should forget about your sins. Not that you don't learn from them, not that you don't turn around and repent, obey, and and go become an amazing person, but if you're made in the image of God and God says, I remember your sins no more, maybe you shouldn't either. Just saying. You're stressed not about giving everything to God because you think God's keeping score, but only a self-interested person keeps score. You need to know that God gave to you without any expectation of receiving from you. Remember Romans 5, 8, that while we're still sinners, do you remember the verse? Christ died for us. Meaning he went to the cross without any guarantee that you'd be able to pay him back, reward him, anything. He paid for the entire sins of the world, every single person, without ever knowing if he would ever have a single person respond and give back to him. He's not doing this, you did this, I did this for you relationship. And one of the ways that I was stuck on this treadmill besides feeling like the cross created this debt I need to work off. If any of you guys are in debt, you know it's like soul crushing. Like it steamrolls you. And that was like what my faith was like you know, thinking about the cross, like trying to pay off the cross with my good behavior and do the right things. But one of the things that was like completely destroying who I was, not only as a person or my relationship with God, but, but trying to pay back was spoiling my future. You know how? As I was paranoid about God's glory, always trying to give God glory. Besides giving God my dirt bike, my truck, my startup, my career, my girlfriend, all the different things, my wife, besides doing that, I was completely terrified that God was this ravenous, selfish glory hog. It's like, oh, you better not receive a compliment without saying me in it. I'd have these like, you know, if you receive a compliment, you're like, you just expect, oh, it's all, it's all God. It's all God. I'm, I'm not even here. I'm not even here. <laughs> you know? Or worse that, oh, shoot, I received a compliment and I forgot to thank Jesus. <laughs> you know, like I need to call them and get back. If I received anything, it'd be... Anything good, any accomplishment, any part of success immediately had this burden of like, I need to let people know that it's only God and and I'm nothing, I'm terrible. Because I don't want to steal any glory from God. 
God's not self-seeking because God lifts you up. God lifts you up. A self-seeking person compares your fame to theirs. A self-seeking person compares what you did to what they did. A self-seeking person regulates your ambitions. You need to realize that God has bigger ideas for you than you have for you. God's vision for you is much bigger than your vision for you. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourself under God's mighty hand so that he will lift you up in due time, not crush you like the cockroach that you are. So he'll lift you up. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine. Whose light? Yours. Let your light shine before men that you may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Because you are in God and he is in you and there is no difference. A Christian who's quite gifted usually experiences tremendous guilt within their gifting. If you're really talented, you might need to feel like I did of always trying to clarify every good thing ever said about you that it's only through God's glory and I'm terrible and nothing. It's only because him and, I, and we make all these different weird statements in here. Now, let me tell you how that sounds in the practical realm. If I bought my wife a dress and it made her look amazing like it does, and then I said, okay, 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 I'm gonna get you this dress, but anybody who compliments you, you need to make sure you say that I bought it for you. And if you don't, I'm going to take the dress back. That's really what we're saying when we consider the giftings that God's given us. And we insist on making sure that like, we downplay ourselves so that he may be lifted up and that, that he gets it all or else that he's going to take it away. What kind of husband would I be if I had her correct every single compliment that really pointed back to me? It's almost saying that, no, you really don't look that good, and it's only because I gave you that dress that you kind of look good. You all are mad at me right now. <laughs> I'm drawing theology here. I would never do this. I'm just pointing out the ways of your theology are messed up. But it takes that kind of analogy. If you're here last week, you, you saw me like make an analogy about my four-year-old girl. I saw like pitchforks in some of your eyes that are going to come after me. But sometimes when we confront a lie like this, we have to put it in the natural. We have to say, does this fit here? Because if it doesn't fit here, it's not going to fit here. If we wouldn't accept it here, why do we accept that we would suffer through it in a relationship with God? We're made in his image. How else do I have a self-seeking God? As I was trapped in trying to lower myself. Not only was I'm trying to like deflect every single good thing ever said, is that I'm trying to lower myself. I really thought that the only way to glorify God is to lower myself. And what we do is we develop language about ourselves. We sing songs. I am nothing. You know, we, we and I, I know we have Amazing musicians here. I've sang all these wonderful songs too. I love music, don't get me wrong. But again, music, the, the enemy will use even the good things of God to try and torment you if he can. And so for me, I have a lot of, you know, it's become my thing recently, like Christian songs that have some tricky theology sometimes in them. But I think that we believe that God is self-seeking when we are always trying to lower ourselves. 
And I used to wear a shirt in high school uh, youth group. It says, he must increase, but I must decrease. There's a little picture of a stick figure man with a cross on one side. It's like a, you know, unequal equation. He must increase and I must decrease. And I remember like church Bible camps, he must increase and I must decrease. You know, and like getting this into like I must decrease. Now here's the thing about that statement, which is John 3.30. It's John the Baptist this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Messiah, right? He's like out there like as the lead guy making the way, seeing the Messiah. And so he says this in response to realizing the Messiah has come. You stop making the way for someone to come when they arrive. He's basically saying like, the bigger authority, the time is here and what he is doing must take over. John the Baptist would never interpret this to be said for us. Why? Because John the Baptist at that time probably had no idea that Christ would live in you and live in him. So when you say, I must decrease, you're actually saying, God and me must decrease. Because you are inseparable from God. I can preach every single week just saying, Christ is in you, Christ is in you, Christ is in you, Christ is in you. And just never get bored of that. That is the single most fundamental truth that if you can ever get your mind wrapped in, the, in you that Christ is living in you and is inside you, you will completely transform your life because you realize there's no separation between you and him. This competition you have in your life about, is it me or is it him? It, it, there's neither. It's you guys together, inseparable. So when you try to decrease yourself, you're actually decreasing God. Because it's God who's dwelling inside you and living with you. God's not pleased with your acknowledgement of your unworthiness either. You might think it sounds really holy and, and righteous and just talk about how unworthy you are, but because most Christians believe that God's a self-seeking God is they believe that God gets pleasure when we say those things. We say, we're not worthy, we're filthy, we're wicked, I am nothing. There's no part of God's heart that desires to hear us acknowledge that. The very fact that we believe that God would get a personal rise out of us recognizing the lowest parts of ourselves is offensive to his character. When we say that, we literally are telling him that everything his son died for was nothing. Take whatever you say about yourself and say, Christ died for fill in the blank. You say, I am nothing. They say, Christ died for nothing. I am worthless. Christ died for something that's worthless. Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? Like, it, I'm not saying that we can save ourselves. I'm not trying to say that we have righteousness apart from Christ. I'm not trying to say any of those things. I'm just saying that, yes, are we sinful? For sure. Were we in need of a Savior? Absolutely. Can we save ourselves? Heck no. I'm saying all those things, right? Don't throw heresy bombs at me. I'm just saying that because that we needed a Savior did not make you not valuable, you actually are valuable. You're immensely valuable. How do I know? Because God sent his own son to die for you. Only a fool pays money to buy garbage. But Christ went on a cross and died for you. You weren't nothing. You actually were everything. Let me say that again. You weren't nothing. You were everything to Jesus. When we say we're not worthy, we're nothing, we're saying that Christ didn't know what he was dying for when he died for us. 
he got a bad deal. So I didn't know this was here. Christ knew exactly what he was doing when he came to the earth and said, you're worth it. Are you in need of a savior? Sure, absolutely. But you know what? You're worth it. That's a totally different mindset to develop when you think about God. When you think that God looks at you and just says, oh, you're nothing. How do we authentically receive his love when we think that he thinks about us what we think about ourselves? He's not thinking about you how you think about you. He actually values you way more than you could ever value you. It's interesting that in every place that you find someone who confronts God, whether it's Jesus or the Father, every single place when someone falls down, you know what is the next response? Get up. Every place you find someone falling down before Jesus, Jesus says, get up. He's not like, oh, this is great. Oh, yeah. Just a little to the left. A little like lower on the hands and knees, you know, maybe put the eyes down. Make sure you like you rub the, the nose in the dirt as you worship me. This is fantastic. No, he's like, get up. We look at the Bible about your sin. It talks about a righteous man falling seven times. It says, but he gets back up. Gets back up. You can't have a relationship who is always down on their face and never in with you. Like God calls us back up because he wants us to be in relationship with, with him. Now God is, the, Christ is the king, but he's in a different king mode than we would expect a king to be. He says this about us that in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. Is he the king of all creation, all of glory? Absolutely. But he says, I call you friend because you're valuable, because you're important. God's not looking for servants or slaves. He's looking for sons and daughters who will be known by him and know him. If you're worried about stealing God's glory, just never do anything significant. If you're really worried about stealing God's glory, just do nothing with your life and you won't. The most reverent people I know for God's glory do the least in the kingdom. Those who I know who have this awe for God's glory and it it shrivels them back to do nothing, they participate the least in the powers and the opportunities of God in the kingdom. Doing nothing doesn't glorify God. Let's get that clear. Doing something and something great glorifies God. The people who truly want to glorify God will make their life count. If you really are concerned about giving God glory, consider yourself valuable in making your life count. Sometimes I wonder if God plants visions and ideas in our heart, but then it gets crushed because we're so afraid that's it, that that dream or vision's in competition with him. There is nothing in God that wants you to be insignificant at all. God has given you all your abilities. You don't need to say it's only from God. Well, like, just be solidified in your mind that everything in you is from him, and you'll stop stressing out like I did. But God has given you all your abilities, and he wouldn't give you your abilities unless he wanted you to use them. The best way for you to glorify God is doing something significant. So make your life matter. He is in you. What you do brings glory to him because he is in you. 
Look at Jesus' prayer when he talks to the Father and he mentions us and the disciples. He says, all I have is yours, he's talking to the Father, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me. Is it on the screen? Look at that. Through them. And all glory has come to me through them. Did you know that you possessing glory is actually part of your transformation with your salvation? Think about the fall. Romans 3.23, all have fallen and fa- all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. Hmm. That's odd. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. Huh. When man sinned, he stopped being glorious. Salvation reverses the curse of the fall. What does that mean about us? You don't know it, but your salvation has made you glorious. To say that all glory goes to God and none to you is actually saying that you prefer what happened before the cross versus after. Don't say all glory goes to God because he's like, I saved you. You became glorious through salvation. Don't believe me? Check it out. Romans 8.30. And to those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. If you're trying to stop yourself from being glorified, you won't succeed until you lose your salvation, which, by the way, I don't think you can. So you're really messed up. If you've received Christ as your Savior, you've been made glorious. Christ is glorified through you. It's undeniable. And so the only way to undo that is to live a life of insignificance or lose your salvation, which, again, you can't do. But God wants you, and let let me kids here, kind of, no. God wants you to kick butt in Jesus' name. Can I say that? (laughs) Needs it on a t-shirt. Like, I want to, like, kick butt in Jesus' name. I want to do things, like, so good, I can say, in Jesus' name. (laughs) That's how awesome I want to be at life. That's how awesome I want to grow my company. That's how awesome I want to treat my employees. That's how awesome I want to love my kids is I want to do it so well as I can say, in Jesus' name, that's right. It's because he's empowered me to do amazing things. And what is with it with Christians who lower the bar? I was at the Q event here recently, and uh, a comment that I had said earlier got taken not entirely out of context, but I was like asked about it in front of everyone. It's like, so I hear you're not a Christian company to an audience full of Christians. I was like, yep, I'm not. Those of you guys who don't know me, I have a small software company here in town I co-founded with a buddy. And so we have a software company. We're believers. We have a lot of staff that loves Jesus. But we're not like putting Jesus you know, stickers and fishes on different things. Like, I don't need to do that. Like, I want people to say, wow, you built an amazing company. You guys have done amazing things. You treat your people phenomenally. Why? And I can say, because Jesus is amazing. Live your life in such a reason that people demand an explanation. Don't say, I'm going to put a bumper sticker on my car so no one ever has to ask. You shouldn't have to put a bumper sticker on your car to have people ask you why you are the way they are. You should live a life 
that kicks butt in Jesus' name, and people are like, tell me how you are doing so awesome. I love DJ because he's a, another startup guy here. And we just love getting riled up about doing excellence. Like, not lowering the bar because we're on team Jesus, but we're God's children. Maybe God's children have a, like a slight edge in the marketplace. How about that? We have all eternity on our side. Maybe we can actually do a good job. That feels like the odds are with us. And so, yeah, I want to be the best. But I'm not, I'm not denying that it's, it's, it's not me. It's Christ in me. And I'm like made peace with that. I'm like terrified like, oh, no, like I don't have that Jesus fixed sticker on my website and they don't know. It's like, no, I have no concerns because Christ is in me. Everything I do is because of him and there's no discussion. There's no such thing as me doing anything apart from him. People are like, Jesus says, uh, apart from you can do nothing. Well, Sherlock, Jesus is in you. It's actually impossible for you to do anything without him. We have that kind of freedom. We actually can go forth and say, there's no such thing as me getting any glory that Jesus doesn't get glory for. It's impossible. How are you guys doing? I'm almost done. On that note, before I transition to my last point, the next time you talk lowly about yourself, just remember you're talking about Jesus' bride. The next time you talk lowly about yourself, just remember you're talking about Jesus' bride. No one better say a word about my bride. I'll tell you that much. That's for sure. We'll just say that. I went to Wacky Tacky this past weekend. No one knows what it is. It's where the people of Walmart take their kids to go play. (laughs) That's terrible. Really terrible. Uh, It is this, like, enormous bounce house and, like, I swear all of humanity in Sacramento comes and like sends their kids there. It is this crazy, crazy, crazy place and you are overstimulated, kids everywhere, you smell fecal, like you don't know what's going on. <laughs> Too far. There, my son, who's two, is like going up and he goes on the second level and there are these little air cannons and he's like, you know, pushing this button. And so it shoots like these balls down to like this like lower area. And there's this kid, he's probably like 12. He's picking up these balls and he's like hurling them back up at everybody who has a cannon. But my son was one of the people that had the cannon. Wasn't firing anything, so he's just like pushing the button because he's making this air sound. I look up, I see him and he like gets hit in the face and he's like confused. He's two. He's like, what was this? Gets hit again. And I'm like, what's happening to him? Like I'm seeing these balls and I see this kid, you know, lobbing these I like, adults are not supposed to be in the play areas. I'm like, let's go. And I went like down. <laughs> and I just like walked right over there. And he picked up another ball and like went like this and like I grabbed his arm. And I was like, he's two. And you're going to stop. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to jail, but I could have. <clears throat> you don't, you don't mess with my kids. You don't mess with my wife. You don't get away with that. So the next time you talk badly about yourself, the next time you cut yourself down because you think that you are elevating God, remember, you're talking about the bride of Christ. I'm performing a wedding this weekend. 
We're the bride of Christ, right? It's the imagery of a wedding ceremony. The bride is never, like, in theory, like, that's supposed to be, like, the time they are prepared in their greatest glory and beauty, right? It's supposed to be the best. And we're saying all these terrible things about the bride of Christ. Would you ever go to, the, to a bride and say the things you say about yourself? I don't think so. Last thing is that God is not self-seeking because God is unharmed by your sin. God is unharmed by your sin. Now, let me make this perfectly clear. God cares about your sin. He is unharmed by it, meaning that you cannot injure God. We've come to believe that when we sin, that God is personally offended. Do we believe that God is a self-seeking God? Well, let me tell you this. When I ever sinned, I thought that God was looking at my sin about how it pertains to him. That sounds like a pretty self-seeking person, doesn't it? That your sin, God's like, oh my gosh, Jimmy lied again today. I don't know if I can take this anymore. Like God's not stressing out over you. He's not taking it directly. He's not harmed by it. God's not thinking about himself when you find yourself in sin. God's loathing of sin has nothing to do with how it affects him. He despises it because of what it does to you. God's entire issue with sin is that it destroys his children. His forgiveness is not the issue. The real issue is whether or not you can forgive yourself for sabotaging your own life. Don't think for a moment that God is offended or mortified because of what your sin did to him. He doesn't allow your sin to affect him. It grieves his heart because of what it did to you. He's in anguish because of what sin does to his kids. Remember, don't mess with the kids. Why is God so swift about sin and the enemy? Because it's what it's doing to his kids. Again, when like my son is like getting beat up by a 12-year-old, you know, kid, like, I'm like, don't mess with his kids. That's how God looks at the enemy, the adversary, and about you. I'm not like, oh no, my son just got beat up. What am I gonna do? It's like, uh-uh. You do not do that. We worry about how God looks when we sin too, don't we? We believe that God has a reputation to maintain. This is particularly specific when we see someone of like high visibility, Christian stature, and they have like some sin that comes out. We're like, oh man, God needs a PR agency now to like help his reputation. But God cares just as much about your sin in secret as he does about the pastor who's exposed. He's not grieved anymore by someone who's got a lot of visibility than someone who has no visibility. Think about this. God is not concerned about his reputation. Does this offend your mind? It kind of offends my mind. I'm telling you the honest truth. It's that God is not worried about his reputation. How do I know? Because he took all sin upon himself, died the death of a criminal on a cross, and was left alone. If he wanted to redeem the world and he was really concerned about his reputation, he'd be like, let's see that happen, pal. And he would like have come in a much different way. But no, he subjected himself lower than the angels, made himself a man. A man that we wouldn't even be attracted to him. And the Bible says he wasn't even like an attractive guy. He wasn't like Brad Pitt or someone. Is that he had nothing that would attract us to him. That is God in the flesh who came and died a criminal's death on a cross for you so that he could have your heart and he could tell you 
He's not concerned about your stuff. He's not concerned about your glory. He's not concerned about your ambitions. He is concerned that you would know him, that you would be valuable to him, and that you would kick butt in Jesus' name. And that's all I have for you guys. I love you.